My wife has told me uh, often that my children have me wrapped around their little finger, especially my daughter. Now, I know that none of you parents uh, ever feel that way about your children, but uh, I, I am. I have to admit it, especially with my daughter. Um, I don't know if it's the big softy in me, but when my daughter smiles at me a certain way, I'll do whatever she wants, right? Now, I have to be a good father, and I have to guide her and protect her in the proper way, but never have I realized this more so than going to Disneyland with my family. It is amazing what a parent will do to a child or for a child uh, in order to let them know that they're loved and cared for. I mean, imagine me in a stitch hat, right, with the ears coming out. Um, uh, Imagine me, uh, Mr., you know, impatient, not wanting to stand in line, but standing in line for an hour for a four-minute ride, right? You guys who've gone to Disneyland know what this is like, right? But even more so, imagine me squeezing into some of the rides. Here's how the interaction with most of the ride attendants would go. I'd pull up, and the guy sitting there with the button would look at me, and he'd say, you know you can put your legs down in there, and I'd just go, six foot ten. He'd go, oh yeah, no, go on, right? That was kind of pretty much how it went every time. So the bobsled Matterhorn, right? I kind of get myself in, and then I have to pull myself in, right? And my knees were something like this, almost all over the other car. And so every single ride was like that almost. And why did I do it? I did it because I love my kids. And it's not necessarily enjoyable for me to be going through tunnels with my legs flailing, right? I could probably lose a limb. But for the kids, they loved it and they enjoyed it. I would do anything for my kids. I would take a bullet for them. I would step in front of a bus for them. I would go to Disneyland for them. (laughs) My daughter wanted to go on Winnie the Pooh again, and I did it because I love her. See, this is what parents do for their kids. They do anything for them. And it made me think as I was standing there in line, having lots of time to ponder, Kelly kept saying, stop philosophizing, stop thinking, stop philosophizing. Made me ponder, man, what is it that the Father has done for us that shows us how much love he has for us? I mean, Disneyland, that's a terrible metaphor because Disneyland's fun. It's enjoyable, right? But the Father has done so much for us. He has literally moved heaven and earth to be with us. And as we'll see today, as we look through the rest of chapter 7 in Isaiah, we're going to see that God is willing to do anything and everything to draw his children near. Last week, as we looked at Ahaz and the story of what was going on with him, uh, we had Syria and Israel breathing down his neck in the north. We had Egypt breathing from the south. We had Assyria coming from the east, and on the west, he was stuck. The Israelites were stuck by the Great Sea. Very similar being stuck between Pihiroth and Migdal with the Red Sea in front of them and the Egyptians coming at them in Exodus, right? Very similar. Stuck with no one to turn to except God. In the middle of all of this, Ahaz was scared to death not knowing what was going to happen, but God was willing to give Ahaz any sign he wanted to give him encouragement that Yahweh God was still with him, was still going to fight on his behalf. Now this is an amazing thing to that the God of the universe would bow down to man, a single man, and say, ask anything at all. As we'll see today, God was willing to move heaven and earth to be with his people. This is what you can write down for today. This is kind of the title for today. God moved heaven and earth 
to be with us. God moved heaven and earth to be with us. Yet even in the midst of this, Ahaz was not looking to God, not looking to Yahweh, but he was looking to his idols and his pagan worship and his own strength, his own military strength to save him. He was even going to the extent of sacrificing his own children on the altars of pagan worship itself. All of this was not working. And so then he stepped forward and he said, okay, the pagan worship isn't working. The sacrifices aren't working. Now here's what I'll do. I'll align myself with the very enemy of God, Assyria itself. The one thing that Ahaz was not doing was turning to the God of Judah, to Yahweh. Isn't that interesting? That's what we do when trouble comes, isn't it? We will try anything and everything before we turn to God. Now, I could do an entire another teaching on that topic. I don't know why it is. Maybe it's because we don't actually believe God will do anything. We're so worried that our faith will be broken when God doesn't do according to what we want that we don't even ask of him. Maybe it could be that we just forget. Maybe it could be that we're wrapped up in our own lives. But regardless of what it is, Ahaz, like us, did not turn immediately to God to deal with the trials and tribulations. He tried to solve it himself. But as the whole Bible speaks to us, God was still going to prove himself faithful. In spite of the rebelliousness of Ahaz, the faithlessness of Ahaz, Yahweh would prove himself strong on behalf of Judah. And so the first thing that we'll see here this morning is this, the sign of salvation. Throughout the next few chapters, God is going to give through Isaiah a number of signs to the people of Judah to speak to them certain truths. And the first thing that he gives is the sign of salvation. Let's take a look at verse 10 there. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God, Yahweh your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or the grave or hell or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. God gives Ahaz the chance to request any sign whatsoever to prove to him that God is with him. How many of us in this room have begged for that opportunity? Maybe in something small, maybe in something large, maybe someone we know is, is dying or is sick and we're begging God, show us a sign, give us a sign. Everyone in this room at some point or other has asked of God to give a sign. And this wasn't Ahaz asking for this. This was God bending his ear down to fallible man and saying, Ahaz, ask anything you'd like. Now let's look at a couple of things about this request. First, notice how it is stated through Isaiah. Isaiah says, ask a sign of Yahweh, your God. This is a personalized, personalized statement of God's gracious offer to Ahaz. Ahaz had not been acting in a way that showed he worshipped Yahweh, had he? I mean, if you go and you worship at uh, the altar of another god, you're not really worshipping Yahweh, right? Especially considering he says, number one rule, guys, have no other gods before me. And Ahaz hadn't been doing that. But even in the midst of his rebelliousness, God reaches down with one more merciful, gracious statement, and he says, ask anything of me, your God. God wants him to acknowledge 
that he, Yahweh, is Ahaz's God. It's as if God is asking, I'm your God, am I not? We've been in covenant to this point, right? I've taken care of you all these years, haven't I? So far in the chapter, all of the you statements have been the plural people of Judah. But here it gets specific. God wants Ahaz to test his faith. In other words, Ahaz, is Yahweh your God? This is a question we must ask ask ourselves. Is Yahweh our God? Because often we find ourselves worshiping at the altar of other gods. Secondly, notice with me, what he is willing to do, what God is willing to do to prove himself. Anything. In our current day nomenclature, we would say, I am willing to move heaven and earth to prove to you. He says, do anything as high as heaven, as deep as Sheol. Now be careful, this is not a universal claim. God is not begging people to do this. Do not claim this as yourself. God, you asked me to ask you for a sign. So I'm going to do it. Show me a sign. No, this is directly to Ahaz. This is a powerful statement of love from a sovereign, strong God who is willing to, as we say, move heaven and earth to help Ahaz, the king of his people, to help him trust that Yahweh is going to be with him. But what is Ahaz's response? Imagine the gall. Imagine the gall to have God bend down and say, ask a sign and I'll do it. And he responds and says, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. Now we jump at this and we say, why would you do that, Ahaz? God is asking you. Guys, think about this. This was not the sky opening up and a voice coming down. This was a man, Isaiah, a man of God, going to another man and saying, here's a word from the Lord. Why don't you ask God for a sign? This was not a voice from heaven. This was a man talking to another man. Just like here on Sunday, if one of us goes to another one of us, or maybe even just me, in the preaching prophetic stance here, speaking to you as another human being, do you brush it off or do you receive it? Because here he brushed it off. In his own perverse piousness, he confused God's word in order to fight against God's word. We do this all the time. We pick and choose what verses we want to use in order to fight things that come at us that we don't agree with. Take a look back with me to Deuteronomy and we'll find out where he pulled this from. He pulled it from Scripture. But in Deuteronomy 6, you'll find that he takes the line and turns it into a moral command, a moral imperative, without actually reading the principle behind it. Deuteronomy 6 And we're going to start in verse 10. Now this is after the whole section that talks about loving the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. Teaching the truth of loving God to your children. It says in Deuteronomy 6.10, And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, in other words, when you're prosperous, you think this is a word for us? Prosperous Americans? Then take care, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. 
Now pause there for a second. Confession time. I know what this is like. I have been in a place for five days where their entire job is to get you to forget life. And it is easy to do. All you got to have is a few things that glimmer in your eyes, a few smells that come across your nose, and a soundtrack that goes along with all of it. And you forget life. That's why we love Disneyland. But this is what the world is. It has caused us to forget our God because the smell has gone across our nose, the tickling ears have worked, and we have seen with our eyes what we want to see, and we have forgotten God due to our prosperity. Now he says, lest you take, uh, take care, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. God is the one that freed them. Verse 13, it is the Lord your God, Yahweh your God, you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. Should Ahaz be listening to this, do you think? For the Lord your God is in your midst. He's already with you. God with us. And he is a jealous God. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. Verse 16. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes which he has commanded you. It is amazing how we can twist scripture to make ourselves pious and miss the context surrounding it. This is what we do. This is how we have defined theology, systematic theology in the West, is we have taken the Bible and turned it into an encyclopedia. Okay, let me talk about testing. I'm going to go to 616. Let me talk about adultery. I'm going to go to this one. We've turned the Bible into a dictionary of themes and topics and missed the principle behind it. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. And when we do that, we take these moral commands and we strip them of their meaning because the principle behind it is what gives it meaning. We turn into pious zealots and Sadducees that are completely against the heart of God. Ahaz had taken this and said, oh, testing? We don't test the Lord God. No, 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 Isaiah. You see, you don't know what you're talking about, Isaiah. He missed the principle. The principle was, serve the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. Don't test his goodness. You test his goodness too long, and he is a God to be feared. Don't test his goodness. Can you imagine? Go to Disneyland. Hey, son, I want you to have a lollipop. Oh, dad, that will give me cavities. Uh, what would you do as a parent? Ungrateful little wretch. Right? Well, that's what Ahaz is. He's an ungrateful little wretch. Oh, no, God, you can't ask me to ask of you a sign. You don't know your own rules. Are you kidding me? And yet, I'm humbled when I think how many times I've done this. How many times God has directed me in a certain way and I've perverted Scripture and twisted it to my own use so I can do what I want. So I can believe what I want to believe. See, this is why the community of Christ is so important, is that by ourselves, we can come up with all sorts of uses for Scripture. 
But in the community of Christ, being discipled by one another, we know the context. How many of you have ever used a screwdriver as a hammer? Anybody? I don't really want to get up and go to the garage and get the hammer, so I'm going to just take the screwdriver and whack the snot out of this nail, right? But if there's somebody, a flashlight, that's even worse, (laughs) right? If there's somebody standing right there, you feel a little bit odd. I'm going to take this thing that I know is not meant for this use and use it. Hmm. No, you go get the hammer of someone standing right there. Same thing with the Word of God. We're not going to misuse it if we're in community. It's going to speak to us the truth. And Ahaz had been corrected by Isaiah here, but he was standing firm. And he was commandeering Scripture to his own private use. Now, that's a good truth for us to not do that, but let's not let Ahaz's sin remove the point at hand. Notice what it says. Go back to Isaiah with me. And notice what it says there that God was willing to do. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. He's saying, I will do anything for you. I will do anything for you. Now, while I said that I don't believe God is asking us to ask a sign, I believe that this statement is still true for you and for, I, for me. God is saying to us, I will do and have done anything for you. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. I want to prove to you that I'm faithful. God moved heaven and earth to be with us. Now, this is where this section begins to get a little tricky. Many of us in this room were acquainted with this section of Scripture, And it's the context of Christmas. It's near to Christmas. And so we probably say, okay, great. Let's jump to verse 14 and read, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. That's the sign. That's God's sign of salvation. No, the sign of salvation here, guys, is this. I will do anything for you. God loves you so deeply. He wants you so near him that he is willing to do anything for you. Great, I've got a list. We roll out our demands. No, see, we'll get to that in a minute. That is not the way to show love. Because you're right, this statement, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, it is a sign of salvation. And we will talk about that in a second. You wouldn't be wrong if you claimed it for that. But the reality is, because we always read in context, what this actually is, is this, in comparison to the sign of salvation, is a sign of judgment. Now, this is going to be hard for us because we've grown up with this verse as this happy, you know, precious moments verse. Get the ornament out of the tree. Oh, behold, a virgin. Look, it's so beautiful. She's got the sheep. and all. Oh, look. I want you guys to read this with me. Notice the tone change starting in verse 13. We're going to see the sign of judgment. So Isaiah says, Hear then, O house of David. Is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Do you think he's pleased here? Therefore, in other words, because I'm upset, God says, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Ahaz had refused 
God's sign of salvation. The sign now moves from something that would prove God's faithfulness to Judah against the enemy to a sign that will now instead prove God's hand had been at work all along. And when Assyria comes to crush Judah, they will know that it was God that was at work. And the sign that he will give to show that he has been at work the entire time is this. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. Guys, this is not a precious moment's moment. This is a moment of judgment. Alec Moitier, a wonderful commentator on, on Isaiah, says this. The sign is no longer a matter of invitation, but now of prediction. No longer persuading to faith, and, but now confirming divine displeasure. This is the other way in which the concept of sign is used, a retrospective confirmation that an act or course of action has come from and been performed by the Lord. The birth of the one known as Emmanuel would confirm all that the Lord said through Isaiah to Ahaz, that this was indeed the moment of decision and that the consequences were divine retribution on unbelief. Thought about this all wrong for a while, haven't you? I know I have. Wow. God is using this to speak judgment. Now, this is a very kind of ambiguous and, and uh, vaporous statement. The virgin. Who is the virgin? Shall conceive and bear a son. Who is this one that will be called Emmanuel? He's going to be eating curds and honey. In other words, he really likes, uh, I don't know, yogurt or something. And he's going to choose evil or choose good. What is this talking about? No. There are a number of theories that play into this. But I'm not going to bother with the theories because I think a number of them can be knocked out. The reason people have wanted to come up with theories about this is because they've attached the sign of the virgin conceiving and bearing a son to the sign before it, saying, ask an immediate sign. And so for years, people have debated and argued and said, this has to be somebody at the time of Isaiah. Was it the son of Isaiah? Was it the son of Ahaz? Was it some random child born in a village that they called Emmanuel? None of these theories really hold water because this is now a separate sign. The sign of salvation was given and it was denied. And now the sign of judgment comes and God says, I'm going to show you that I'm the one that's in control. I'm the one that is going to bring to bear all of these things. Now, the sign of a virgin conceiving a child we can look at it and realize it's a second sign. That helps us to understand it's a bit different. But the thing that tells us what this is is actually in the New Testament. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. And it will tell us very quickly who this is actually talking about. Take a look at Matthew 1 verse 18.
Matthew 1.18, it says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David. Notice his name there. Joseph, son of David. Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Yeshua, Jesus. In in Hebrew, Yeshua means salvation. You shall call his name salvation, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, meaning Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. In Hebrew, that name, Emmanuel, means God with us. When Joseph woke from the sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not, in other words, was not intimate with her, until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Yeshua, Jesus. The sign of the virgin conceiving a child, and that child carrying the title of God with us, or Emmanuel in the Hebrew, was to be a sign of judgment upon Judah. Why? Because when you've been given the grace of God's literal presence as God's people and you still dismiss it, then only judgment comes. Let me say that again. When you've been given God's presence as a people and you still dismiss it, then the only thing to await is judgment. Now this is a statement for the church as much as it is a statement for Judah, is it not? We have the Holy Spirit among us. We have God's word. And yet, we still often dismiss it as if it's nothing. Now, let me show you a little bit more of what I mean here. Notice that he said, Joseph, son of David. This is very, very important. In Isaiah, he said, Hear now, O house of David. What are they keeping referring to? Turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7, and you'll see what they're talking about. Go to 2 Samuel 2 Samuel 7, verse 12. God creates a covenant with David here, King David. In 7.12, he says to David, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son when he commits iniquity. I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. That's a pretty sure statement, is it not? God said, your throne will be established forever. He promised David that his lineage would fulfill God's plan. And he entered into covenant faithfulness so that all of his offspring, including Ahaz, would be established on the throne. And yet, 
How does Ahaz respond to this promise? He dismisses it. How does this play in for you and for me? Ahaz, we know that this is wrong. Well, it's like this. Guys, God is faithful. He's loving. He has promised you that he will be by your side and will be faithful to you all your days. That does not mean life will be perfect. It does mean that God will be with you. And in the end, he will take care of things. And the reality that I had to come to, the, the acknowledgement that I had to come to, is that in my daily life, moment by moment, feeling by feeling, I was dismissing that truth. I was looking God in the eye, saying, I know you've covenanted with me. I know you've given me your son. I know you've proven to me your love and your faithfulness, but I'm going to let my feelings reign. I'm going to let my mind reign and my circumstances, as we talked about last week, reign. And I'm going to dismiss your promise. Following Christ requires bringing your thoughts, your feelings, into acknowledgement of the truth. That God is faithful. We got home from Disneyland last night. And I don't know if it was a, a Disneyland hangover, pardon the phrase. But our daughter started throwing up pretty violently. And of course, being the dad who's wrapped around my daughter's little finger... I immediately cry out to God in my heart and mind, God, what are you doing? Does anyone else do this? Right? This is not my plan. This is not how I would have liked this. Come on, it's Disneyland. We're supposed to enjoy it, right? And immediately I was struck because I was in the middle of studying for this. I was struck at how even in that moment, I was faithless to God's faithfulness. And I had to bring my thoughts into captivity and say, Lord, I know you're going to take care of this. Whether she continues being sick, whether we all get sick, whatever, you're good. You're good. And you're loving and you're faithful. We have to continually bring our mind into that truth because if we have it, which we all do, the truth of God's presence, and we dismiss it to any little bit, we are doing the same thing that Ahaz did. See, God is basically saying to Ahaz, in spite of your rebellion, I'm going to keep my plan going, but my plan will end in judgment for you, Ahaz. My plan of salvation will go. I will have a virgin who conceives and bears a child, and his name will be salvation for those that trust in him. But as for you, Ahaz, this is judgment. Turn with me to John chapter 3, and we'll look at it in New Testament terminology. In John 3, 16, we see Jesus speaking the same truth to us because the world wants to shake its fist at God and say, God, you are one who condemns us. You are one who judges us. No, guys, we are already condemned and judged without God. See, our first mother and father and all the way through humanity, we have turned our back to a loving, wonderful, faithful God. We are condemned already because we've done that. Jesus is the way out of that. And when that way out is presented to us and we still fight it and we still rebel against it, what we do is we bring judgment onto our own head. 
We pursue other gods instead of following the one true God. We think we find our security in wealth and in prosperity and in our retirement plans, but God is the one in whom we find our security. Look at what he says in 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son. Let me repeat that. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Guys, when you are presented with the fact that God would do and did do anything to show you salvation, when you are presented with the fact that God moved heaven and earth to be with you, when you grasp that, you realize that to deny that love is to bring judgment on your own head. You see, when the option to repent from darkness and worshiping and serving anything other than Yahweh is presented and it's not immediately taken, we are reaping judgment on ourselves, distancing from the source of all love and truth, distancing from one another, and we are going to start reaping the condemnation that comes with being separated from God. Not because he wants to force it on us. He says that he has no joy in the death of his saints, no joy in our destruction. He wants everyone to come to him, but our denial of it is bringing judgment upon ourselves. And so the truth here, as we will see throughout Isaiah and have already seen, is that God is either going to be with you unto salvation or with you unto condemnation. Now, be sure of this, dear saint. If you are one who has said, no, God, I want your salvation, and I am slowly but surely growing, because we're all growing, slowly but surely growing in the knowledge that when presented with something, I either choose light or darkness. And I'm choosing light more and more regularly. And I'm growing in you, Lord. If you're that person in here, then realize this. God would not move heaven and earth in order to show you love and then cast you aside. If you are one of his saints, crying out to him in his graciousness and mercy, he will not cast you aside. He will allow you the freedom to walk away from him, but he will not cast you aside. God did not move heaven and earth to be with you, to cast you aside on a whim. So what does this judgment look like in Ahaz's life, in the life of Judah, or in our own? Well, turn back to Isaiah 7, and we'll finish off the section of Scripture. Let's go back up to verse 15. After it says, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, there are three things that we notice. They're laid out as judgments. Things that happen because of the turning away from God. Verse 15. This one, Emmanuel, he shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. 
The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. Now, many of us get hung up on these. Wait a minute. Is this, if this is talking about Jesus, did he not know to refuse evil when he was young? Well, the way we can clear this up is very, very simple. Two things we have to understand that are idioms of the day or sayings of the day. The first is eating curds and honey was akin to living in poverty. If all you had were curds that came from the milk of your cattle or your, uh, your, your rams or whatever, I guess rams wouldn't provide milk, never mind. Uh, don't listen to me for biology, people, okay? Go talk to Tyler or somebody who knows that. Um, it would come from your livestock. Honey would come from the bees that were around you. It was you'd have to go out into the wilderness to find food. Eating curds and honey meant there would be poverty in the land. Secondly, though, uh, refuse the evil and choose the good is just a statement of youth, that someone is in youth, okay? Uh, Elsewhere, the idea of knowing the difference between your right hand and your left hand is also used as an idiom. In other words, what Isaiah is saying here is that when Emmanuel is a small child, the land will be in poverty, Israel and Syria will be wiped out, and by that day, all of this will have been done. And it's the truth. If we look back even a few verses to verse 8, he had already prophesied this, that within 65 years of talking to Ahaz, Syria and Israel, the two countries that uh, Ahaz was worried about, they would be wiped out. And so we know that this is not an immediate statement. This is not a sign that's going to happen within the next couple of years, because even verse 8 says it'll be at least 65 years out. In other words, by the time Jesus comes on the scene, A long time, over 700 years later, Israel would still not have recovered. That's what this is saying. And so what is it that happens when we dismiss the love of God? Well, the first thing you can write down, the first sign of judgment is this, a loss of freedom. A loss of freedom. Israel and Syria and even Judah themselves, by the time Jesus comes on the scene, by the time Emmanuel shows up, they would have lost all their freedom. From this moment on, all the way through, all you would have is puppet kings that weren't truly reigning for themselves. They were under the, uh, the authority of a different king in a different empire. And even into Jesus' day with the Romans, there would be a loss of freedom when you dismiss God's love. The world wants to tell you that following Jesus is going to be a loss of freedom. Now you can't drink, smoke, chew, go with girls that do. You can't do those things now that you're a Christian. Well, I'm sorry, I don't want to do those things. Let's see, lung cancer lip cancer, throat cancer, uh, STDs, uh, killing my liver. Boy, those sound like fun, don't they? No. See, following Jesus gives you freedom. It gives you freedom to realize that you are in control of yourself. I've been around too many people and counseled too many people in addictions to know they are not in control of themselves. Why? Because the addiction has taken their freedom. The God that they serve in order for escape in order to escape the truth of their life, has taken away their freedom. And when we dismiss the love of God and follow a different God, we end up with a loss of freedom. He continues on here. He says in verse 18, In that day the Lord will whistle for the fly that is at the end of the streams of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. And they will all come and settle in the steep ravines and in the clefts of the rocks and in all the thorn bushes and all the pastures. He's using illustrative language here to say this. The armies, 
that you hate from Egypt, from Assyria, they're going to come and they're going to so fill this land that you cannot get away from them. It will take over every part of the land. And when we dismiss the love of God and we start pursuing after everything, it so consumes us that we lose slowly but surely our freedom. And that's what the enemy does. He does it slowly but surely. He doesn't just one day come and take everything away from you. He slowly but surely drains you of everything so that your freedom is gone. Well, next, verse 20. In that day, the Lord will shave with a razor that is hired beyond the river with the king of Assyria, the head and the hair of the feet, and it will sweep away the beard also. God is going to use this hired hand, even though they don't follow him, the king of Assyria and all of his armies, and they're going to come and they're going to so wipe out the people that there will be the second sign of judgment, a loss of honor. A loss of honor. Not only a loss of freedom, but a loss of honor. To people in the ancient Near East, this idea of being fully shaved is not a good one. Not only was the head shaved, not only is the beard shaved, but you have to understand the idiom in the Hebrew of the shaving of the hair of the feet, it does not mean feet, okay? Most of the time when it talks about the feet, it's actually speaking of your private area, okay? When Saul goes into the bathroom to uncover his feet in the cave, it doesn't mean he's literally pulling up his robe, it means he's going to the bathroom, he's uncovering his private area. This means that the people will be so dishonored that their entire body, it would be like their entire body being shaved. Now, why would they use this? Well, to the Jew, the only time this ever happened to you was when you were impure and unclean with leprosy and disease. And you were kicked out of the camp of Israel. Isaiah is stating to them that the enemies are going to come and going to remove their honor and so shame them that they are going to have to cover themselves and flee their own people because they will be so ashamed. Now, you can go look that up. If you guys think I'm pulling that out of thin air, go look it up. It's absolutely true. There are many times where that idiom is used throughout the Bible, okay? That also is uh, very interesting in the book of Ruth when Ruth uncovers the feet of Boaz, but we're not going to go there today, okay? Get you thinking, okay? Everybody back on track now. Loss of honor, loss of freedom. And lastly, we'll see a loss of fruitfulness. Verse 21. In that day a man will keep alive a young cow and two sheep, and because of the abundance of milk that they gave, he will eat curds. For everyone who is left in a land will eat curds and honey. Isaiah is just all over curds and honey, man. In that day, every place where there used to be a thousand vines worth a thousand shekels of silver will become briars and thorns. With bow and arrows, a man shall come there, for all the land will be briars and thorns. And as for all the hills that used to be hoed with a hoe, you will not come there for fear of briars and thorns, but they will become a place where cattle are let loose and where sheep tread. We see a removal of food, of prosperity, of peace, and of fertility here. A complete loss of fruitfulness. You'll be eating curds and honey, survival food, because you have no food of your own. The land that was once profitable now is not. Anywhere you go, you'll have to bring protection because it will be chaos and violence. 
And what used to be farmed and in order is now chaotic and covered with briars and thorns. Judah would be left with nothing. And those of us that dismiss easily the unconditional love of God, we lose our freedom. We feel impure and ashamed inside, and we spend our whole life fighting that. That's where most of our, our social and mental and um, uh, illnesses come from, is from an inability to deal with the brokenness around us and in our lives. Um, much of what's called disassociation is having to break away from the brokenness around you or that's done to you in order to make sense and survive. And when we feel impurity and brokenness inside of ourselves, it's not the only cause of things like anxiety and, and shame, but when we feel ashamed, we'll do anything to get away from it. We'll fight our own feelings. We'll fight being around people because we feel so broken and ashamed. And the only way out of it is to go back to the love of Christ and to realize he's the one that restores our honor. And those of us that are away from the love of Christ, we will also lose our fruitfulness, things like peace and patience and love. Man, spend five days in Disneyland and your patience is going to go. Why? Well, because I was away from the Lord. I was with my family. I was loving my family. I wasn't doing anything quote-unquote sinful, but I just wasn't really focusing on the Lord. I was focusing on the line in front of me, and where's the churro and the dole whip, man? You know what I mean? These things happen to us when we turn aside the love of Christ, just like it did to Ahaz. We miss, mess around with a mixture of God and a mixture of of the world, and yet we think it's going to end up in anything other than mess. See, Emmanuel, God with us, can be one of two things. It can either be a sign of salvation for you that tells you, man, God is true, he is faithful, or it can be a sign of judgment. There are some of you in this room today that need to hear that. You've started to lose your freedoms, lose your honor, you feel broken and impure inside because you've slowly but surely drifted away from the love of Christ. And you know that there is nothing at the end except chaos and unfruitfulness, and yet you st still keep pursuing it. Jesus will either be a lifesaver that saves you from the depths of your own sin and impending spiritual death, or he will be a millstone that's tied around your neck and sinks you in great judgment. It all depends on who he is to you. Is he your king? Is Jesus your Savior? For you see, in the midst of all these signs in chapter 7, I believe that there is one underlying sign through all of chapter 7, and that's this. The sign of ultimate love. The sign of ultimate love. You see, this was not a new sign. The virgin conceiving and giving birth to a child. All the way back in Genesis 3.15, God said to the woman, to Eve, your seed, your offspring, the word in the Hebrew is Sarah, your seed will crush the head of the serpent. How can a woman have seed? The woman is the one with the egg. The man is the one with the seed. See, I got some biology right today. How could a woman have seed? Well, only if she conceives by way of the Holy Spirit. This is a fulfillment in the middle of the word that says that plan that God initiated in Genesis, it's still going forward. 
And it speaks to us the truth of the sign of ultimate love that God is willing to do whatever it takes. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven to prove to you and to me that he loves us to the greatest degree. Our creator God left his heavenly abode and came in the form of his son 2,000 plus years ago to speak to every single person in here and say, I love you to the highest heights and the lowest lows. I would do anything to prove that to you. And in fact, he did. By coming as that child in the manger, by taking on flesh, dealing with the world around us, he did move heaven and earth. J.I. Packer, a wonderful pastor and theologian, said this, in the New Testament, grace means God's love in action towards men who merited the opposite of love. Grace means God moving heaven and earth to save sinners who could not lift a finger to save themselves. We might say, Hans, that's great. That's wonderful. You know, the precious moments thing, the Jesus, that's all good. I want my own sign. Why doesn't God give me a sign? Well, Here's the reality, guys. No matter how pure we are in following Jesus, there is always still a piece of sinfulness in the midst of our desires. And if God took every one of our selfish desires and tried to give all of us a sign, it would probably do some major damage. Soren Kierkegaard said this. He said, You wanted God's ideas about what was best for you to coincide with your own ideas. But you also wanted him to be the almighty creator of heaven and earth so that he could properly fulfill your wish. And yet, if he were to share your ideas, he would cease to be the almighty father. See, the truth is, is that God went on his own plan and did his own sign to show us that he would move heaven and earth because it is the most pure, most spectacular most ultimate sign of his love, that he would give himself up to death for us. He would come, not in majesty, but in poverty and in a manger, that he would give his life to ministering in righteousness and justice, and that he would die a death that wasn't his own to take, and that he would resurrect three days later to prove to us the truth. What is that truth? That God loves us so much, he moves heaven and earth to be with us. Couple last places I'll turn you. Turn with me to Matthew 12. And I first want to show you that he did indeed, literally, go as deep as Sheol for you and for me. Matthew 12. And look at verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered Jesus, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Interesting. But he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Wait a minute. Did he literally go into the core of the earth? Now, guys, you've got to understand, in that day, what he was speaking to them was of the grave. He was saying, I love you so much, I will go to the grave for you. And not just for you, I will go to the grave in your place. Jesus went to the lowest lows for you and for me. Elsewhere it says that he literally went into hell 
to preach victory to the demons. Amazing that he would love us that much. Not only did he go as deep as Sheol, but he also went as high as heaven. Turn with me to Hebrews. Go to Hebrews 9. If you get to James, you've gone too far. Hebrews 9, and take a look at verse 11. Speaking of the tabernacle and the temple and everything that went on in there, the the atoning sacrifice that would have to happen, and comparing it to what Christ did, the author of Hebrews says this, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places. In other words, he entered into heaven, into the temple of God himself. Not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, So that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, He took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. In other words, just as they did on earth in the tabernacle, Jesus went into heaven to do. It says, But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into, hol- uh, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. See, Christ loved you and he loved me so much that he was willing to go to the deepest depths, the highest heights, heaven itself, the grave itself, in order to prove to you and to me that he loves us. God moved heaven and earth to be with us. And it would start all as a small baby, born to a virgin, born in a manger, stripped of his royalty, given to poverty, and he did it for your sake and for mine. And this is what we prepare our hearts to celebrate in this second Sunday of Advent. We prepare our hearts to celebrate his birth, to realize 
that it was the sign of his ultimate love for us that he would come as that child, that he would grow to be a man, that he would die for our sins, and he would resurrect to prove that he is God. And so today I want to challenge you to examine your own hearts. I want you to ask where you stand in relationship to Jesus Christ. Are you one who looks at the birth of Jesus and doesn't think much about it? You go through the whole Christmas season, every once in a while catching a glimpse of that precious moment's ornament on the tree, thinking, oh, I love Christmas. But the majority of Christmas is full of Bing Crosby, maybe the Grinch, maybe Christmas Vacation, whatever movie you like. And it has very little to do with that sign of God's ultimate love. Maybe you're too busy looking to other things in this world to bring you joy and peace and protect you and save you. And today I want to warn you quite lovingly that Jesus, Emmanuel, becomes nothing more than a sign of judgment for you. Do not mix him with anything else. For those of us in here that follow Jesus and do our utmost to follow and respond to his love, not being perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but slowly but surely letting all of the junk from our sinful lives roll off of us as we pursue him, then Jesus is a sign of wonderful salvation and a kingdom that will not be moved. Jesus is the salvation of God. He's the salvation in the midst of all the trials and the storms. And so this is the most important question I can ask you. Where do you stand in relationship to Jesus? Our application and response today is not to turn Jesus into that caricature, that thing that we kind of use to celebrate Christmas, but to realize he is a consuming fire that will either consume us or draw us near. Turn just a couple of pages over to Hebrews 12, and I'll finish with this scripture. Hebrews 12, 25. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they, the Israelites, did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. And that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase yet once more indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire.